guys, this is Debbie, and welcome back to my podcast, Candle in a Dark Room. So today I have a friend of mine. Her name is Ashley Simpson. She is here to share her story. She's a survivor of sexual violence, but now works as a confidential sexual violence advocate for a nonprofit. I want her to come on and share her story and her journey of healing and advocacy. We have a very similar story. And so we actually connected here through my candle in a dark room page, and we just became kind of connected and then just continuously talked the last year. And I'm just super glad to have her here. So Ashley, thank you so much for being on my podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So like I said, me and you have talked a lot before, and we have a very similar story. And the recent things are different than mine. And so I really just wanted you to kind of start from the beginning and let us know kind of what's happened recently and where you are now. Well, I grew up in a really conservative Christian home. And when I say conservative, I mean like uber conservative. Like our dress code was very strict in what we wore, where we went, who we were associated with. So from an early age, I was taught to fear my authority and fear being in trouble. And so when I was about seven years old or eight years old, somewhere in there, my biological father, he walked out of my life and that really messed me up for, yeah, yeah, that really messed me up. Um, Because you remember pretty well, right? Well, that's the funny thing about trauma brain is that you, especially when it's associated with child abuse, your memory can be a little spotty and patchy. Right, okay. And so my biological father, my mom had said, for years was physically abusive of us. And so I've heard all these horrible stories about him abusing us and hurting us. And I don't really have those memories. So it's it's hard, especially when you're told that somebody's like done something like that to you to not remember. So it's unclear exactly like why he left, but he left very abruptly when I was about seven or eight. And I just never heard from him again. And that really left a huge hole in my life. And I remember seeing the other kids at school, how they'd have father-daughter lunches and activities. And um, I just really always wanted that. I always wanted that relationship. Also, when I was like eight, so there's like an overlap in the time. And I think it's because my mom was like cheating on my biological father at the time that the two overlap. And that's when my stepfather came into the picture. And And so was your mom cheating with your stepfather already then? Yeah. Yeah. So they were, they were cheating. She got pregnant and then my biological father was out of the picture and I remember after he left though that I grew very attached to my stepfather I just really was trying to fill that void and you know as a child you're really trusting you're really accepting and loving so I grew really close to him and he was just like a dad to me so he had two sons of his own and I had my sister And then my mom and my stepfather, they ended up having my third brother together. And so everything seemed perfect. We finally had a family. Everything seemed normal. And then I just remember one night when I was maybe 11 years old, somewhere around there, I don't remember the grooming. I don't remember like how it started. I don't necessarily like remember a first time, but I remember him carrying me from my bed 
down to the basement and raping me. Okay. And I was like and you 11. Said you were around, oh, okay, 11 at this point. Okay. Yeah. So I just remember during that time that I would just pretend to be asleep because I didn't know what to do. And so I'd pretend to sleep until it was all over and he'd carry me back up to my bed and put me back to sleep like nothing happened. And that carried on for about two years. It's kind of hard for me to know how long it actually was. Actually, 9-11 kind of helps me have like a gauge in there of where I was. So I know it was like at least two years. Do you remember kind of your reaction at that point since you were 11? Yeah, I remember not knowing what to do. And I felt really scared. I was afraid. And I remember thinking it was my fault. And that I had done something. And again, this is like why I mentioned the Christian background. Mm -hmm. I had done something to like bring this on myself. And that was kind of ingrained in me. And so I thought that I was helping him cheat on my mom. And so I was afraid. Yeah, I was afraid that that she was going to be really hurt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was afraid she was going to be really hurt by what I was doing if she ever found out. So that kind of weighed on me. And that's a lot to weigh on an 11-year-old child. Do you remember trying to, like, fight or yell or anything like that? Do you remember? Or did he threaten you or anything? Mm -mm. I never froze. He never threatened. See, this is, um, I think, also, like, a misconception that a lot of people have with rape is that we have the idea that it is a violent crime, but that we have this, like, kind of movie-esque picture in our mind that the victim is fighting and screaming no and being brutally hurt while it's happening. Right, but in reality, especially when it's in your own home, it doesn't usually go like that. Right, and, like, for me, I learned that my trauma response is freeze. Mm -hmm. I don't fight. I freeze. And Mm -hmm. it's a very frustrating thing to have to accept about yourself that in those moments when your body feels like it's in survival mode, it gets to choose for you. And for me, it's always been freeze. But that doesn't mean that I'm like, it's my fault at all. It's just how my body protects me. Right. And I think that when you're a kid, that's 90% of the reaction. I mean, honestly, Mm -hmm. when you're a kid, most people that I've spoken with that have been sexually abused as a child, that's most of our responses. That was mostly my response, your response, because we're children. We're automatically scared and we really don't feel like we can fight and we're, because we're not going to win. You know what I mean? So I think subconsciously there's no point. Right. I mean, you think about it, you're this tiny little child and there's this grown 30, 40 year old man that is overpowering right. you. It's a fight you won't win. That went on for two years, like a nightly routine of him carrying me from my bed and raping me every night. And finally, the last time was really weird. I remember it was like in the morning. The rest of them were in the middle of the night when. The rest of my family was asleep, but this mm-hmm. one was like in the morning. And I remember because I remember the front door was open and the sun was shining on me. He didn't even take me all the way to the basement. He took me to the bottom of the stairs and my family was sleeping just like a few feet away from me. Oh, wow. And so he raped me at the bottom of those stairs. And I remember I was pretending to be asleep and he usually took me back to my bed. 
but he didn't. He just left me there and my underwear was like beside me on the floor. Mm. And I finally open my eyes and I look over and he's just playing on the computer, like playing solitaire or something. So I got up and he turned around really quickly and was like, oh, you want to make waffles? And I just ran. I ran to my mom. That's the only time I like didn't freeze. I ran and I ran to my mom and I remember being really scared to tell her, but I told her everything like in great detail of what he had done. In that moment you told her. Yeah. Okay. So I was probably like 12 or 13 at this point. And I remember she shut my bedroom door and we sat on the floor together and I was telling her everything that happened. And I told her how long it had happened. And she looked at me and said, what do you want me to do? And mm. I mean, like, <laughs> for like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, like for a child, <laughs> like, that's why I'm coming to you. I'm a 12, 13-year-old child that's been raped for two years, and I'm finally telling you, and you're asking me what Mm -hmm. to do. And so I don't really remember exactly how that conversation ended, but it was basically And your stepdad was just downstairs during this point. Yeah, super weird. But she was, like, basically left it with, we're going to move forward as a family and forgive and forget about this. And so I tried, and that's... When, like, I'm kind of able to put a timeline because then I recognized that she pulled me out of school after that and homeschooled me my seventh grade year. And so that kind of puts it into at least, like, a place for me where I can kind of remember where it ended. And we also moved to a new home. So I was... And he stopped at this point. So as far as I can remember, he had stopped at that point. Okay. Um, I remember we moved into a new home. I was no longer like around people that I was familiar with because I was homeschooled now. So I was basically isolated. And so I did that for a year and then she tried to send me to a different school the next year. So a totally new school where I didn't know anybody And I just remember growing really sick. I got really sick, really depressed. I I mean, I recognize it now as depression, but Mm -hmm. then I was being tested for every illness they could possibly put on me. They had uh, diagnosed me with mononucleosis and usually that takes about, I think, three to four weeks to get out of your system but I had it for like five or six months where I couldn't move. I just wanted to sleep all day, all night. I didn't want to eat. I started developing an eating disorder where I just really hated my body and was disgusted with myself and was refusing Mm -hmm. to eat. And so I lost so much weight in those first few years of high school that I was 85 pounds, like as... Oh my gosh. As like a 14, 15 year old, which is severely underweight. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay. And so my doctors had labeled me as anorexic and told me that anything less than 115 pounds for myself was anorexic and I couldn't gain the weight. 
I remember having family members and people constantly shoving food in my face, just telling me I needed to eat more. I needed to put some meat on my bones and that I was too skinny. I was too thin and nobody like could see that the problem wasn't on the outside. The problem was inside. I was literally deteriorating inside. Did he say anything to you about what, you know, like why it stopped all of a sudden? I'm just curious, you know, like why all of a sudden just one day it stopped? Do you think your mom maybe talked to him? I think I scared him when I went to my mom because that was like kind of the first time that I had done anything except for just like lay there and freeze. And so I think it freaked him out and he didn't want me to say anything to anybody. So from that point on, from after that day, he acted like nothing had ever happened. Like total gaslight, <laughs> like acted like nothing ever happened. And I was crazy. Right. I brought it up again to my mom when I was in ninth grade and this time understanding a little bit more what like sex is and you know, the anatomy of the body, I told her, like, in even greater detail, what had happened. Mm -hmm. And she told me that if I ever told anyone that I would tear the family apart, and that it was on me for killing my grandparents of a broken heart. That seriously blows my mind. At this point, because you had already come out with it, and it had stopped, had you told anybody else other than your mom? No. And I think it's because I was trying to get help. But I mean, every time I tried, I was shot down. Shut down. And, right. and and at the time, I couldn't see my mom as a horrible person. In my mind, she was still my mom. She was still my biggest support at the time. Right. In my mind, you know, as a child. And Well, of course. Um, I mean, that's yeah. your safety. It's supposed to be your safety as your parents, your mom especially. To go to her was obviously your first reaction because you felt safe. And then the fact that she kind of completely shut you down, I think, definitely kind of made you step back and not want to tell anybody else. Yeah. And I still, to this day, though, firmly believe that had a doctor put two and two together and asked me privately without my mom in the room if I was being sexually abused, I think I would have answered yes. Then you didn't have anybody ask you those questions when you were sick? No. And I was in and out of hospitals all of high school and all of college. I was known as the sick kid because I was never in school. I was constantly seeing different doctors for stomach aches that I was having and different body aches and headaches and my eating disorder and nobody knew what was going on. They tried to diagnose me with hypoglycemia and then they said I was diabetic, but you're not diabetic because it doesn't match up and it doesn't make sense, but they couldn't figure it out that. Mm -hmm. And that to me is fascinating that it shows that it affected my blood sugar, but it didn't match up with an actual disorder. So, which, yeah, that is super funny because I, as I've told you before, after I came out with my story at 15, right after is when I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So, I definitely mm-hmm. think it affects your body. But, yeah, the fact that you didn't get actually diagnosed with it is kind of crazy. Well, because I remember he was like, Well, you're not hypoglycemic and you're not type 1 diabetes and you're not type 2, it's like in between them, and that doesn't exist. 
I remember the doctor telling me that. And You're I was like, just like uh, um, okay. Okay. <laughs> so maybe yeah, it's so something what does that else. Mean? But yeah, so I remember like all through high school, I grew to really hate my stepfather. And yeah, I course. stopped calling him dad. I called him by his name. And my mom would throw a fit and reprimand me for not calling him dad. And she was just like, you are so disrespectful. That is your father. You need to call him dad. And would force me to call him dad, would force me into these family pictures to sit on his lap. Anytime we were in church or anywhere in public, I was always right beside him, like to save face and make everything look normal. So it was just like constantly being re-traumatized over and over and over every day. Right. And your siblings never knew anything. They ever asked questions about why you like changed or got different? No. And I think because they're all younger than me. um, Oh, okay. Yes. I was the oldest. And I mean, at that time, my stepfathers didn't really know me well enough, I guess, to know uh, what I was like before. But before all of this, I remember being a super happy, outgoing kid. Mm. And then after that, I became so reclusive and closed off. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was always sick and depressed. My anxiety was always high. I was failing all of my classes and nobody could understand why my grades were failing, why I couldn't seem to be healthy. They were pumping me full of vitamins and trying to push food in my face. And I met my husband now when I was a senior in high school. And when I first met him, I was so mean to him. He says I wasn't <laughs> mean to him, but I was, I know me and I was mean to him. <laughs> that was my mean. <laughs> and it was just because I didn't trust him. I didn't trust anybody. Right. How old were you? I was 18 at that time. And, and you still lived um, with your stepfather. Yeah, still lived with my stepfather. And I just remember for a year, he would show up outside my locker and want to talk to me. And I'd just be like, no, go away. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. leave me alone. And finally, I one day after like a year, I decided to give him a chance. And we've been together since. It's been like 13 years now. But yeah, like, I think getting to know my husband is kind of what made me break eventually on Mm -hmm. all of this because I, for the first time, was loved by someone. Truly, Um, right. Truly. What I experienced in my home from my mom, from my biological father, from my stepfather, that wasn't love, but it was all I had ever known. And so when I got to see what love was actually like, I wanted nothing to do with them. Mm. So I remember again in college telling my mom one last time about what happened, trying to get somewhere with this, because I honestly, at that point, I was so done with all of it. Mm-hmm. And you, I well, you had been baking it for, for several years at this point. Yeah. And so I was a sophomore in college and she had asked me about the details. And like, I told her again, what he had done. And she said, Oh, that sounds like him. Your mom. That's still, 
Yeah, and that still sticks in my mind. She recognized the sexual acts that I was saying that he did towards me as normal things that she's experienced. So again, she told me though, that if I ever told anyone that my stepbrothers would never want to talk to me again, that my stepfather's family would never talk to me again, and that I would break up the family. And so at that point, I was just done. And I remember like, she quote unquote, confronted my stepdad in front of me about this and like ask him about it and he was like oh I would never do anything like that to hurt you I would never hurt you I love you blah 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 and it was just again like my mom forced me to hug him and said let's just move on and I'll forgive and forget wow I I think that phrase is so stupid forgive and forget forgive and forget Uh, because oh yeah absolutely because I always tell people the opposite I, you know, yeah. you have to forgive people at some point to fully move on, at least to like get rid of that anger in your heart. But you will never forget what happened to you. You'll never mm-hmm. forget the trauma that you went through. So yeah, that, that saying does not make sense to anyone who's actually been through any trauma. So I tried, you know, I tried to move on and pretend like everything was normal. But at this point, even in college, I was still really sick. I remember they were testing me for celiac disease because, again, I don't understand how these doctors don't make the connection that trauma is strongly connected to our gut and our stomach. And that was where I was having a lot of my issues was my stomach and having these like really severe stomach pains. And so they thought that I had celiac disease, but then of course, when they go in to look, there's nothing wrong in there. So I had doctors for years tell me that I was making up all of this. And so when I graduated from college, my husband and I, we got married. But when we got married, I even remember on my wedding day, that was one thing that I refused to budge on. I was not going to let my stepfather walk me down the aisle. And I had my grandpa walk me down the aisle and my mom was furious. Even on my wedding day, she was like telling me that I needed to let my stepfather walk me down the aisle too, that he's been a dad to me. And I, and this is in front of the entire bridal party. I was just like, oh my gosh. I looked at her and I was like, you know why I don't want him to walk me down the aisle. And in front of my bridal party, she was yelling at me that I'm being a selfish brat. And I didn't realize, but I know now that one of my bridesmaids had pulled her aside and told her, she's like, I don't know what's wrong with you guys and why she hates your husband so much, but you need to lay off because there's obviously something wrong. Right. And so thankfully that didn't become more of an issue that day, but When we got back from our honeymoon, we got a call from one of the pastors at the church, and he told us that he wanted to meet with us. And so this meeting, he was at first asking me about this fireworks tent that my mom and my stepfather had run for the church, and basically they had been stealing thousands of dollars from this fireworks tent. And so he was asking me about this and I was telling him, I was like, no, there have literally been like bags of cash in my home. They always get a new car when you guys have the fireworks tent and say that the Lord has blessed them. I've seen them pull out wads of cash out of the cash registers. So 
I'm telling him all of this, thinking this is what the meeting was about. But Mm -hmm. then after I kind of gave him all that information, he was like, is there anything else you want to tell me? And for some reason, I knew exactly what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. And I had disclosed to my sister-in-law about the abuse just a couple months before the wedding. And I guess she didn't know what to do. So she went to this pastor and told him everything, asking for help. And so... And is she the only other person you had told other than your husband? Yeah. And so when he said that, there was just something like in his face that I knew what he was asking me. And I told him everything. Mm -hmm. And so he arranged a meeting for the next day for my husband, me, my mom, and my stepfather. And they thought this was all about that fireworks tent. So Mm -hmm. I remember them walking in the room and they were so mad because I had ratted them out. And you were how old at this point? I was 24. 24, okay. Yeah, and so they walk in there and they're really upset at me. And then the pastor, I don't even remember how it got started. He asked me a question and said that I had something that I wanted to talk about. And so then I just don't even remember what I said, but apparently according to my husband, I went into a 5 hour long rage where I basically and you don't remember this, okay? I don't remember it, but apparently I was very clear, calm, and extremely articulate in what I was saying, and I think I just blacked out while I was going through all of this. And I remember little bits and pieces where he was trying to deny it. And then I would just like snap and I was not giving up. That was like my day. So we had a retired police officer who was there and she came in. And after I had gotten him to admit to it, she got him to write down his confession on a piece of paper. Okay, so he did admit it that day like after five hours he finally admitted it and do you remember what he said I don't remember what he said I just remember he admitted to everything and that I was telling the truth and that he was sorry and so this retired police officer she got him to write that all on a piece of paper like everything every detail that he had done and every detail Mm -hmm. he confessed to and signed and dated it. And then she called the police and he just sat there and waited. And what was <laughs> your mom's police. reaction? Oh, my mom was like, oh, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. I wasn't there for you. I wish I had known. And it was just complete bullshit. Did you call her out at that moment? <laughs> no. I remember, again, like I just froze as she's hugging me and I'm just like a limp noodle like in her arms and was just like in shock that she's like trying to deny not, that she didn't know. Yeah, trying not to remember even though I had told her multiple times. And at that point I was mostly focused on just getting my stepfather behind bars. And I remember mm-hmm. the retired police lady, she had asked me, she was like, do you want to prosecute against your mom too? And the only reason I didn't is because my youngest brother, he has special needs, and I knew he wasn't going to understand that day. And at that time, I was already taking one parent from him, and Mm. I didn't want to further traumatize him by taking both parents. And that was just the decision I made that day. 
it would be different this day today. But at the time, I felt like that was the best thing for him. Hey guys, so quick break. So if you came to my podcast launch back in August, you saw one of the vendor booths from the lovely ladies from Clone Apparel. The founder, Alex, was actually a guest on episode 10, Darkness Before Dawn, which was about suicide prevention. They specialize in apparel for every booty, men and women. I can literally go from recording this podcast to the gym to picking up the kids from school and never have to worry about them moving, scrunching, and showing my booty. They are squat proof, moisture wicking, and did I mention super affordable? I'm talking nothing over $40. You can find them on Facebook or on Instagram at Clone Apparel. That's K-L-O-N Apparel. And the link to their website is in the bio. If you use my discount code, candle in a dark room, one word, you will get 20% off. So make sure you check them out because I know you'll be obsessed too. So I remember them carrying him off in handcuffs and having to go give my statement at the police station. And it was all kind of a blur because, you know, it's kind of like everything had led up to that. But it was just honestly a blur. But I don't know that I can put it into a feeling because it's kind of like your head. Yeah, it's kind of like an explosion of feelings like an oh, my God, people are actually listening to me now. Like it's no longer a secret. Okay. Yeah, it's like vindicating. Mm -hmm. And so when I went home, my husband went with me and we were trying again in private to talk to her about it. And this was honestly my last chance for her. I just wanted Mm -hmm. her to admit to what she had done and to her part in all of this. Mm -hmm. And she looked me in the face and told me she didn't know anything. What? Did she not remember you telling her? No, she totally does. And that's the thing. And that's the reason why I just couldn't be around her anymore. I was like, I can't possibly forgive. I I hate that word. But like, you know, whatever that looks like for you, I can't do that thing for somebody that can't even admit that they did anything. Right. Take any responsibility in her part in it. Yeah. And so that was the moment that I cut off all ties to my mom. I no longer had any communication with her, never saw her. So that was seven years ago now. You just walked out that day and just stopped talking to her completely? Did you tell her, like, I'm done with you? Yep. I wrote her a letter and said, do not contact me or I will prosecute. And she didn't. So after I cut ties with her and my stepfather was out of my life, I all of a sudden started seeing myself grow healthy. I started gaining a healthy amount of weight. I no longer had any health issues or stomach issues. Mm. Like I could feel my body healing. Yeah. Right. Like these people had kept me sick for half my life. Right. And once I was finally free of them, I was finally able to feel whole and Mm -hmm. healthy. And I didn't know what that was like. And so after I started that, then I started therapy and have had like a really good relationship with my therapist for the past like five years now. Okay. And she's been amazing in helping me with my healing. And through that, I've uncovered other traumas that I didn't even remember. And this is, again, like part of the struggle with child abuse is you don't always remember it until something triggers it. 
Mm-hmm. And my biological father had reached out. This was two years ago, I think. Okay. But he had reached out and that kind of spurred on a bunch of feelings. And I had a lot of questions, obviously. And I think mostly for me, it wasn't that I wanted a relationship. I never wanted a relationship with him. I just wanted answers. Like, why did you leave and never come back? And, you know, like, why did you never even try to reach out or do anything? I remember. Did you tell him what had happened? Oh, oh yeah. No, I told him about what my stepfather had done. And I told him that if he had been around that that wouldn't have happened and so it was like you know this is your fault because you walked out and you weren't a dad right but yeah it's brought up a lot of triggered memories like I remember again some of this has come up since I've been more vocal about my story and I Mm -hmm. think that also tends to like trigger yourself because it makes it more of a reality so yeah I've only been talking about this publicly for a year now and I remember joining a workout program last summer and I was in a plank position and I'm supposed to like twist my body one way and rotate my shoulder and my shoulder like was trying to pop out of socket and again I had a body memory of my biological father ripping my arm out of socket and I had had I mean like my mom and my grandma had told me stories about that and that they had taken me to the ER because he had dislocated my shoulder a few times and it wasn't until that moment that it was really confirmed for me I was just like oh yeah no that's that that definitely did happen so it's a lot of like processing those new memories that are kind of being introduced and they're still kind of coming and mm-hmm. you know well, it hasn't you been might... that long since you reported right. him I mean it's only been seven years yeah seven years so yeah I mean it hasn't been that long and you went through so much of that for so much more than seven years that it's going to take a while you're going to continue to have more memories that are going to come up you know but yeah. luckily now you've learned and you're learning while you're continuing to go through therapy more skills to kind of help you get through those moments so with your siblings did you you know stop contact with all of them kind of how was their reaction with everything my sister has been like really supportive of everything and believes me and has been there for me so we've had a good we've had a good relationship my stepbrothers though they don't believe me and they blame me for what happened and I remember shortly after my stepfather had gone to prison my oldest stepbrother he wrote on Facebook that he wanted me to die yeah did they ever ask you like or did they just automatically assume you were lying well no so what happened was the day that my stepfather was taken to prison while he was waiting for the police to come get him I actually called them and told them that there was an emergency and I needed them there at the church right away and so when they came I made him confess everything to them so they oh, heard okay. it from his mouth but and yet they still don't believe you okay And I think, well, and I think, again, a trauma response, because like, they're traumatized by this as well as secondary survivors, they're looking for someone to blame. And Mm -hmm. the least painful person to blame it on is me and not their dad, their dad. Yeah. Okay. So that's kind of how I've looked at it. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't hate them for it. I understand it's got to be really hurtful and painful for them. But yeah, I haven't heard from them since he was taken to prison. Wow. And with your siblings, 
siblings, they've never remembered him doing anything to them. No. Okay. That was one of my biggest concerns. My sister and I, we shared a bedroom and a set of bunk beds. I was on the top and she was on the bottom. And so Mm. I had asked her several times if he had ever done anything to her. And she was like, not that I can remember. She's like, I don't remember him ever doing anything to me. But she was like, but also I never liked him. And I think that's the difference. Because, you know, you can tell when a child is connected to you and accepts you. And so I think I was an easier target because I was more eager and more accepting than she was. Right. Well, that makes complete sense. He knew that you had that trust in him. So he took advantage of it. Yeah, definitely. So where are you at kind of today? So I know you're an advocate. So again, we started talking about a year ago when I came out with my podcast and kind of told our stories to each other. And it was very similar. And you were Mm -hmm. going through the court process the same time I was when my stepdad was, you know, released and everything. Can you tell me what has happened in the last year when you found out that he was going to be released? Yeah, I had heard like about this time last year that he was up for a parole hearing in December. So this past December, 2019. Mm -hmm. This is the second one that he's been up for in seven years. And so I had made all these plans to go to Missouri and to give my statement in person. I really wanted to fight this and I really didn't want him around children ever again. So I had made these plans But then while I'm making these plans, I'm also applying for all of these jobs as an advocate because I felt that I was in that place in my healing that I really wanted to give back to survivors. I wanted to make a difference and felt like that was something that I could handle and where I was at in my healing. And so Mm -hmm. I'm applying for all these positions and come October, I still hadn't gotten anything and I was still a nanny but I was so burnt out and I was so tired of not doing the thing that I feel like I'm supposed to do and I remember the the day you sent me the text (laughs) message where you were like I am done I am done with this like I said I'm gonna do something (laughs) bigger what should I do and I was like look for look for something in your area because we have stuff here in Utah like you've got to have some type of rehabilitation centers or something there. yeah but yeah I just remember you being like I am done with this well I mean I loved I loved being a nanny and I loved my kids but yeah it's just like you know when you know that you're supposed to be doing something else right, and something bigger yeah I was like I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing and so right. I put in my two weeks notice without any plan and I was honest with (laughs) I do remember that (laughs) and I I know it's crazy but I like was just honest with the family I was working with and I was like you know I'm really feeling pulled in this direction towards being an advocate and I don't feel like it's right for me to be pursuing positions when you don't have somebody to replace me because I really did I really did love them and like had a good relationship with them so I gave my two weeks notice with no job in hand and no plan. And I remember you were um, like, I'm just gonna wing it and hope that I get something <laughs> quick. It was like, okay, good for you. Because remember the same time as when I was quitting mine as well. And so yeah. I was like, I'm I think I'm gonna quit mine soon too. And I was kind of waiting. I ended up waiting a little bit just because I was waiting for like 
situation with my dad. But then once he had a heart attack, I ended up quitting in December. So around the same exact time, we both were just like, okay, we're done. We have nothing in mind yet, (laughs) but we're going to figure it out as we go. Yep. So that's what I did. (laughs) While I was home jobless for like about a month, I applied relentlessly to as many jobs as I possibly could. And I finally got one for this nonprofit that I absolutely love. I'm a confidential sexual violence advocate there now. So Mm -hmm. I get to work like in crisis and accompany survivors to the hospitals and to the police stations. And so it's like a really awesome opportunity for me to like feel like I'm giving back and making a difference in survivors. And you're really hands-on, which I think is helpful for you because you really can tell that you're making a difference. Yeah, it really feels like I'm giving them something that I didn't have, which is that support. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's really healing. And I, I mean, I'm not doing it for myself, but it's also giving. No, but it definitely helps yeah. us as well. People ask me all the time, like, is it triggering? I'm like, no, what I do isn't triggering. It's because, you know, I was a crisis worker before I quit my job. And that's yeah. what I did a lot of in crisis in the moments right after people are assaulted or other situations. And I got asked that a lot. Is it too triggering for me? You know, but again, I would always say like, no, if anything, it's the opposite of that. Yes, it's helping them, but it's also helping me. And so it's kind of, it's a, you know, it's a perfect package because I'm getting healed by helping other people walking in through it, you know? So I definitely can see that it is helping you heal while you're helping others. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And it is super healing to feel like I'm giving that to survivors. Mm -hmm. So I was given this job and I had a choice I had to make because I had originally planned to go to that parole hearing. And, but it was supposed to be, it was scheduled to be my first day of work. And so, of course, course, uh, that's how it always goes. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, I have a choice to make. Um, Do I take the job that I've been really wanting and feel like is my purpose and my passion or do I go and fight this thing in Missouri because I felt like it was an either or I'm sure that like they would have been supportive if I would have like asked but I was more concerned about my mental state returning after that right Um, right because I didn't know how I would be mentally well enough to come back and jump into this position um, Mm -hmm. after going through that because I knew I'd be re-traumatized again by going through this. So I decided to write my letter instead and Mm -hmm. I still feel like that was the right thing to do but in deciding that I was like you know what I'm not giving him another day of my life. I'm not going to let him control my life. I'm not going to let him take anything from me. And I'm not letting him take this from me. This is what I fought for. And this is what I wanted. And I'm going to take it. And I'm not going to let him have any more power over me. So I I decided to write my statement and get as many statements together as possible from people who knew me well. And Mm -hmm. I submitted all of that. And I was told that this was going to be like a four to six week decision that they would make. And Mm -hmm. I got the decision three days later that he would be released. 
the reason that like kind of takes my breath away personally is just because I remember that feeling of I actually went to, mm-hmm. to my stepdad's parole hearing read my letter in front of the court and him and everything and they made him sit behind the wall but he was there he heard my letter and I remember I told him about how I was in rehab for two years and all the things that had done and you know all that stuff and same thing I got the notification that he was going to be released what is wrong with our system what are we fighting for if we literally are telling him how much these people have destroyed our lives and then they still release them so I remember when you sent me that message too after you had found out and I was just literally in tears for you because again, I know that heartbreak. I know that yeah. basically the feeling of, okay, well, I give up kind of, you know what I mean? That feeling of yeah. in, in, in the moment of like, okay, I'm done. Like, why did I even try? Like, it's hard. A lot of different feelings come in. You know, obviously when you sit in it in a minute for a minute, you kind of start getting other realizations and you're a little bit more rational, but for sure mm-hmm. at the beginning, it's just reaction and it's hurtful and Mm -hmm. it's serious and shock yeah definitely and I hate how they notify you too like it was literally just it came up as a text email oh you got a text message I got an email I got a text message and an email and it was just like oh this is from the parole board Brian will be released and I remember I had a huge panic attack because I was just like in shock. And, you know, you go Mm -hmm. back to that dark place of like, especially as a survivor feeling like you're not heard, you don't matter, Mm -hmm. that your words don't hold any weight. And I remember I was hurt at first, but then I was angry because I was like, they took three days. That's what my life is worth to them. Three days. Mm -hmm. To determine, And I was like, I know that they had other things to do and other parole hearings to hear other responsibilities during those three days. So I was like, I don't think they even read my letter. I think that they had this all figured out what they were going to decide beforehand. Yeah, I think that's what they do, unfortunately, at the beginning is yeah. they kind of make them go through the things they need to do. And then once they do, there's no reason to keep them. So yeah, we can write letters and do all that all we want, but they basically yeah. have already made their decision. And so I got angry about that, but then I got angry about how so many other survivors are going through this. And yeah. especially like with that text message, I was just like, this is like the most impersonal, inhumane way mm-hmm. to possibly notify me of this. And I like, I'm like, can you imagine having your daughter murdered by someone and found on a road dead? And then you get a text message that that person's being released. Yeah. You know, I was just like, it's re-victimizing us all over again. I mean, that may sound like a really like big word, but that is what it feels like. It feels like we're being re-victimized. We're inadequate. Nothing, like you said, we don't matter. And so that's, I think the most frustrating part in all of it is we're people too. And it doesn't seem like we are when it comes to the system. We don't see, we're not important at all. We're just another number in the group. You know what I mean? So that's exactly how I felt as a number. Uh, a number. So it took me a while to kind of process all of that and to move through it. And I'm still kind of trying to process it. That was only a few months ago. And so and have he been like actually released? No, he will be, he has to complete the sex offender program first, which takes about a year. So they said that he would be 
released by February of 2021. Okay. So my time and energy now is going towards the survivors that I'm working with now that don't even get to see their perpetrators serve a day in prison. And no, that doesn't make those seven years that he had any less unjust. But also I'm like, at least I got something where so many, most don't see a day of justice. Mm -hmm. So my time and energy now is being focused towards those survivors and trying to make a difference for them in the future. And I want hopefully sometime in the future to be able to make a difference, especially when it comes to how we notify victims about their perpetrators being released and how we go about these parole hearings, because the whole thing Mm -hmm. is a traumatizing experience. Well, this is why, you know, I've actually asked for people listening, I've asked Ashley and it's still in the works, but eventually, you know, I've talked to you about how I'm going to advocate in court and go to parole hearings and things like that. And that's why I've mm-hmm. started to do. But my goal is to have people in different states around the country doing that. So Ashley would, you know, represent in her area and go to court with people, go to parole hearings, do those things with people who need the support and help them go through that traumatizing experience of having to go to parole hearings, having to go to court. And basically, we're going to be loud and try to get our voices heard as much as possible. Because that is the only way this is going to, we're going to be able to make a difference with this. Yeah. I mean, that's my, at the root of everything that I am doing is I'm using my own experiences as fuel to see Mm -hmm. the bigger picture of what is wrong with our system and what is wrong with society and how we treat survivors and how survivors are constantly re-victimized and Mm -hmm. not given justice, not treated as humans. And and not protected afterwards either. And that's the thing too, is you know, this recent stuff that's happened to me and my stepdad, I went to try to fight him to go to stay in prison. He was released. He was let out. I told him they needed to make sure he didn't have contact with me because that's what he always said he would find me. What happened? He has been stalking me for the last few years. And now Mm -hmm. I have to go to court and do the whole thing all over again. Because the justice system failed on their end of keeping me safe. And they're lucky that I wasn't killed, that I wasn't kidnapped. Because, yeah. I mean, the way things were going, that was the direction things were leaning to. And if I, if he wouldn't have been caught the way he was at that moment, who knows what would have happened. So, you know, and I called his pro officers and left messages and told them, hey, I think he's following me. Did I ever get a call back? Nope. Did I ever get an email? Nope. Never got anything. So again, it's this type of stuff that's so important. Like, why is it, okay, they go, these child perpetrators that are hurting children, full-on actual raping children, there's proof of it, they've admitted it, all of that, go to prison for, you know, five to ten years at most, and then are released, and then what, we're supposed to just, like, keep living our life and not be scared and not feel any fear at all? Even though there's people like my stepdad who can't let it go sometimes, who still have the obsession of wanting to hurt this, either the same person or someone else. So yeah, like mm-hmm. it's it's just so hard because there's so many different angles that we could go at with the way the justice system is handling everything. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that makes me the most angry is I'm like, how do you justify letting out a man who raped a child? Like right. I... That is one thing I'll just never understand is how they were able to pass over my statement 
and how they were able to pass over the whole report and look at his case and be like, oh. And he, he admitted it. Law. That's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, my biggest fear, because I'm like, no, I'm not fearful for myself. I'm not a target anymore. What I'm fearful for are the children that he will be around when he's released. So I'm like, you as a justice system, as a parole board, you failed those children because mm-hmm. they will be victimized by him. And there's nothing right. I can do about it. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, that's something that I've had to kind of, you know, keep reiterating to myself that this was not my fault. This was out of my hands. I did my mm-hmm. best. I did what I could. And at the end of the day, they were the ones that made the wrong choice. They had the power. Right. And they chose not to use it. Yeah. So. Exactly. Um, so how do you deal with things now? Yeah. Like when you're triggered, what is your kind of go-to response? What do you do? Well, I mean, like I, through therapy, I've learned how to ground myself really well. I do have an anxiety disorder and panic disorder, PTSD and depression. <laughs> you Which know, all makes I, sense, though. <laughs> yeah. And so anxiety attacks and panic attacks definitely look and feel different for me now that I have those tools to calm myself Mm -hmm. than they did when it was just kind of like everywhere and it's like your feelings and your fears and everything is just overwhelming and everywhere and there's no control of it where now I'm able to ground myself a little bit better where I can I know it sounds stupid but like the grounding technique where they're like find five things that you can see four things that you can touch three things that you can that's another one thing I use for my yeah healing through trauma um, thing that I'm doing right now that's the number one thing I'm telling the girls I'm coaching is that such a huge technique for anxiety and to help kind of subside PTSD, flashbacks, disassociation, things like that. That's what would pull me out of my disassociation was the five senses. So that's Mm -hmm. the number one thing that I definitely recommend. So that's one of the things that I do for myself. Also, one thing my therapist taught me is that when we go into that crisis mode, we, I, I don't remember which side of the brain it is that shuts off. But it's the logical part of your brain. So yeah, it's the only logical like, brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's only the feeling brain that is taking over at that point. So that's why when we go on a walk and you're using both sides of your body, left, right, left, right, that mm-hmm. you can think more clearly about things or sometimes why we get better ideas when we're going on walks. So walking or my therapist also taught me another thing called a butterfly hug where you literally hug yourself and you're tapping on your left side, your right side alternatively. So again, you're activating left and right brain to do both sides of your body. And so that's another thing that I do or I listen to music that empowers me. Those are all really good grounding techniques for me. Yeah, those are all really good ones. Well, good. Yeah, I think, like you said, the five senses are really good ones. Listening to music, all of that's really great. And I think that having your you know, husband, you have a really good support system, which I think yeah. is key also. So, you're, you know, also going to therapy is another huge one that's going to continue to help you through all of this. Because I will say that when he is released, it's going to trigger again. And it's something that as trauma victims, unfortunately, trauma survivors now still will always have those memories 
that will be triggered. And yeah, we know how we can learn to cope with those, but it's not something that's ever going to necessarily go away. It can be better because the tools that we use, but it will never forget. So I think everything that you're doing with the advocacy, the nonprofit you're working for, we're going to do some stuff together. You know, everyone who's listening, I want to start a online support group. So I'm going to be doing that very soon. And Ashley will be involved in that as well. So yeah, there's lots of things that I love that you're doing, not only for yourself, but for other people, other survivors. And again, we've been talking this last year and you've grown so much just in the last year since we first started talking. And I can just feel and see a difference in your demeanor and the way you handle things. And so I'm just super proud of how far you've come and where you are today. So thank you for just coming on and sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. And do you have any advice or anything for someone who's either going through this or has recently gone through this, kind of how to cope and deal with what's happening right now? Yeah, I would say that, you know, the biggest thing as a victim when you're in that victim mentality is feeling like you don't have a voice. So finding a way to give yourself that voice. And that doesn't necessarily have to be done in this way. It doesn't have to be done in going to law enforcement or telling someone Mm -hmm. about your story. It could be journaling Mm -hmm. or poetry or writing memos in your phone about your story, just some way to validate what happened to you because That's one thing that I know as a survivor and even with the survivors that I've worked with, that we all have that commonality of feeling that voice and that power taken from us. So finding a way to find that voice, finding a way to find that power and a way to push forward can really be healing. Absolutely. Do you want to share your Instagram so that way they can find you if they would like to ask you any questions? Yeah, sure. My Instagram is underscore Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y, period, Simpson, like the Simpsons, S-I-M-P-S-O-N. That's it. Awesome. Well, again, thanks, girl. I appreciate you sharing your story. I think your story is so impactful and continue using your voice. And I am just excited to kind of see what you do with the future. So thank you again for coming on here. Of course. And you guys make sure you follow at Candle Dark Room. Message me if you have any questions about today's episode and we will talk to you guys next time. 